You are listening to Gone But Never Forgotten. Our topics can include, but are not limited to, murder, sexual assault, graphic and gruesome details, and more. These topics are adult in nature and are not meant for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. Between June 25th, 2007 and August of 2014, Elizabeth Wetlofer would commit crimes against numerous people as she worked in southwestern Ontario as a nurse within long-term care homes. She would have a position that enabled her access to many medications and many patients, and she used that power and responsibility to rack up a list of crimes that would lead to her eventually pleading guilty to eight counts of first-degree murder, four counts of attempted murder, and two counts of aggravated assault. Who were the people that she treated with complete and utter disregard? Who were the victims of one of the worst serial killers in Canadian history? This week, we will tell you their stories to the best of our ability. Hello, and welcome to episode 46 of Gone But Never Forgotten, The Victims of Serial Killer Elizabeth Wetlofer. and welcome back to GBNF. We're in the midst of another three-part series on the life and crimes of another serial killer here in Canada. Last week, we shared the story of Elizabeth's family and home life, her struggles, and the life that she lived before she admitted at Cam H in Toronto that she had done some incredibly horrible things. As much as you can see patterns and such after the fact, I don't think that it can be said enough that there are no reasons that it is okay to take your life out on others. I've said at times in the past that I can understand and even empathize at times with these killers, and this is no different. She had a hard life, but there are ways to deal with that, and there are certainly ways that you don't deal with those things. Elizabeth, and those around her for that matter, are the perfect example of what not to do. But this week, we're going to completely pivot and tell you the stories of the only people that matter in this story at the end of the day. The people who were assaulted and killed for reasons that are unbelievable. This week, we talk about the lives that were taken and the lives that she attempted to take. So, sit back and listen to the lovely people who were taken away or hurt by a woman who believed that she was doing the work of God. Between 2007 and 2014, Elizabeth Wetlofer would commit a path of crimes that would center on and take the lives of one of the most vulnerable sectors of our population. 
Elizabeth Wetlaufer would use and abuse the power and privileges that were afforded to her by her position as a nurse to take innocent lives. Today, we're going to talk about the lives that she took away. The lives that she removed from their families and friends before it was their time. Between June 25th of 2007 and December of 2007, Elizabeth Wetlaufer would commit her very first crimes while she was working at Crescent Care. This was the long-term care home that she worked at for the longest amount of time and the location of the bulk of her crimes. Her first two victims were sister-in-laws, Clotilde Adriano and Albina de Medeiros. These two sisters were not murder victims. It seems with the benefit of hindsight that perhaps this was Elizabeth's first dip into experimenting with the murder weapon that she would use across all of these cases. We haven't talked about it yet in the first episode. The murder weapon was insulin. As a diabetic, I will just give you a quick rundown on insulin if you are not really aware. Insulin is a hormone that lowers the level of glucose, which is a type of sugar, in the blood. It's made within the pancreas, and it's released into the bloodstream when the glucose levels go up. Generally, this happens after eating or drinking. Insulin then helps glucose to enter the cells of our bodies where it's used for energy or stored for use in the future. Insulin is naturally produced in the body. However, for diabetics like myself, we need to inject insulin daily because our bodies do not produce enough. That is where insulin comes in. Thank you, Dr. Ryan. Elizabeth would have had access to limitless amounts of insulin as a nurse within caressant care. Back to the sisters, though. Elizabeth dosed the sisters with insulin. The doses that she gave to the sisters were not fatal, thankfully. And when police investigated both women in connection with Wetlaufer, they did not attribute their eventual deaths to her. Elizabeth Wetlaufer would end up being charged and convicted of two counts of aggravated assaults for her assaults on these two women. In the agreed statement of facts for these two cases, she said that she would apply force to each woman by injecting them with insulin. She also agreed that she was aware that she was administering insulin to both women for no real or perceived medical purpose, nor was she doing so on doctor's orders. She was aware that she did not have the consent of either woman or their power of attorney's consent. She also agreed that she knew she was putting their lives at stake by injecting them with insulin and that an overdose of insulin could be fatal. Let's touch one more time on insulin. Since you know what it feels like to have a sugar low and you understand that all firsthand, why don't you explain to the listeners what that's like even if it's not a fatal dose? It's that time in the show where I'm going to get personal again, huh? <laughs> so when you give yourself insulin, from time to time your body digests food slower or whatever and you can have a sugar low. That's when your glucose levels dip below what is considered to be the normal range. For most people, that's between about 4 and 7, depending on who you ask. And when you go lower than that 4 and really start to dip, it's one of the most awful things that you can ever experience. You start to get the spins, you start to sweat profusely, you feel faint, and then the lower that you go, the worse it can get. You can certainly pass out, 
your brain stops working properly, and you can certainly even die. When I start to feel myself dip, I personally become ravenous. I start to eat and drink anything that I can with sugar to get my levels up quickly because it really is an awful feeling. As someone who's had a few concussions and one really severe one, I will say that the awfulness of a concussion, while longer and more drawn out, the actual feeling itself pales in comparison to a really bad sugar low. So you can understand what these women must have gone through. They had no idea that they were being given insulin at that time, and they quite possibly felt some of those things that Lance just discussed. That's just awful. As kind of a story to lift the mood for a moment, but that I think is relevant, I had a friend tell me a story of a time that he took cookies from his wife's purse and ate them, not knowing that he had taken pot edible cookies, cookies that were laced with marijuana. Well, when he got high, it was the first time in his life that he had ever had marijuana in any way. He called 911. He felt faint. He was passing out. He was a hot mess. As much as that's funny, certainly, that is a lot like what insulin would do if you were injected with it and you didn't know, except for the fact that insulin can also prove fatal. Clotilde Adriano would pass away on July 30th, 2008 at the age of 88. She was born on October 25th, 1920, and she lived in the Woodstock area of Ontario. Clotilde and her husband Manuel, who predeceased her in 1997, had two children, Tony and Donna. She also had five grandchildren and three great-grandchildren at the time of her death. Clotilde was part of a big family and had many siblings. On March 5th of 2007, Clotilde moved to Caressant Care and she was suffering from many ailments, including diabetes, which she controlled with injected insulin. She also suffered from dementia. When Clotilde first moved into Caressant Care, she required adjustments to her insulin to get herself leveled out. In June of 2007, Elizabeth started working at Caressant Care. In July of 2007, Clotilde started to have hypoglycemic incidents, meaning that her sugar levels were dropping below normal. This was obviously the case because Elizabeth was giving additional doses to Clotilde. This week, we want to focus more on the victims. Next week, we will get more into the crimes themselves. Clotilde was taken care of when she had her hypoglycemic events by other nurses, and as mentioned, when she did pass away, her death was not attributed to Elizabeth. Albina de Medeiros was Clotilde's sister-in-law, and she also lived at Crescent Care. She would pass away on February 25, 2010, on her 91st birthday. Albina was born on February 25, 1919 in Portugal, and she moved to Canada to join up with her brothers and the rest of her family. She got married and she worked alongside her husband, Macias, growing tobacco in the Woodstock area. Albina and her husband did not have any children of their own, but her husband did have children from a previous marriage. Albina's cognition started to decline and everyone started to worry for her safety being at home. So, on April 12th of 2006, she was admitted to Caressant Care, where she would later be placed in a room next to Clotilde, as they were sister-in-laws. Albina's medical history also included diabetes, and she was also taking regular insulin injections. 
as mentioned, when she passed away, her death was not attributed to Elizabeth. Elizabeth would commit her first murder on August 11th of 2007. The murder took place at Crescent Care and took place when she gave 84-year-old James Silcox enough insulin to kill him. James Lansing Silcox was born on February 17, 1923, and he spent most of his life living in Woodstock. He was a World War II veteran, having served with the Royal Canadian Army Service Corps for four and a half years in Italy, Holland, and Belgium. He had been married to Agnes Silcox, née Bond, for 63 years. He was a father to six children, David, Daniel, Diane, Joanne, Janet, and Andrea, and he had 13 grandchildren and eight great-grandchildren at the time of his death. He had worked at Standard Tube Inc. in Woodstock for over 30 years. He was also a member of Old St. Paul's Aglington Church in Woodstock. In the spring of 2007, James had a stroke, and that resulted in him staying in hospital for four and a half months. The stroke had affected his right side and left him prone to falling, which he also did while still in the hospital, when he fell and broke his pelvis. On July 25th of 2007, James was admitted to caressant care with many diagnoses, including Alzheimer's disease and diabetes that was controlled by insulin. It's just so sad. 17 days. There were 17 days between Mr. Silcox was first admitted to Crescent Care and when he was killed. It just blows me away the series of events that had to happen for him to be there where he was and for Elizabeth to have access to him. Can I just say, I know that one murder does not count as any more or any less than another, but stuff like this seriously breaks me on a different level. I've mentioned before, I think, that I work with seniors and I love chatting with them, especially the people who immigrated here or that served within the army. The stories that these people have and the sacrifices that they've made in their lives are heroic and something to behold. Yet, here is this monster who completely had no regard for patients that she was put into the trust of taking care of. Yeah, these poor people. On December 23rd of 2007, Maurice Granat would become the second murder victim. Maurice was 84. Maurice, also known as Mo Granat, was born on February 7th, 1923, and he lived the majority of his life in the town of Tilsonburg, Ontario. He was a tinsmith by trade and an auto mechanic, and he ran a small shop in Tilsonburg where he worked fixing all types of devices. He had two daughters, five grandchildren, and 11 great-grandchildren at the time of his death. He was also predeceased by his son. On December 4, 2006, Maurice would be admitted to the Crescent Care Home. Maurice was battling cancer, had numerous other physical ailments, and he was unable to take care of himself. Within a year of being at Crescent Care, Maurice was becoming very frail and fragile. By the end of 2007, he was not eating regularly and he chose to spend most days in bed instead of getting up for the day. He was not, however, diabetic. Thus, he had no need to be given insulin. Unfortunately, as we will discuss in depth in the next episode, Maurice was indeed given an overdose of insulin. This is what is also incredibly scary to me. I cannot even imagine having a sugar low without prior knowledge of what that was or why you felt that way. 
Maurice did not have any apparent issues with his mental faculties, so he was likely fully aware of what was going on as he was killed by insulin. This is just absolutely awful. Wayne Hedges would be assault victim number three. He passed away on January 24th, 2009 at the age of 57. Wayne Douglas Hedges was born on April 23rd, 1951. His family was largely centered within Western Ontario. Wayne had been living at Crescent Care since 2000 and he suffered from diabetes, schizophrenia, and mental disabilities. Wayne's diabetes was treated normally with insulin injections. Elizabeth admitted to police that she had overdosed him with insulin on October of 2008 with the intention of taking his life. Wayne would leave behind his dad Bruce and his mom Helen and his sisters Dixie and Barbara. He was predeceased by his brother Rick in 2002. He was also an uncle to many nephews and nieces as well as a great uncle to many. Michael Priddle would then be assault victim number four. He passed away in January of 2012. Michael Stephen Priddle was born on June 1st, 1945, and he grew up in Ingersoll, where he would meet his wife. They got married in 1971 and had one son. Wayne was a butcher by trade, and he worked until his diagnosis with Huntington's disease, which is an inherited brain disorder that causes parts of your brain to die. Michael was also a massive hockey fan. His Huntington's would lead him to needing 24-hour care, and as such, he was moved to Crescent Care on October 20th of 2006. Michael was suffering a great deal. He was unable to voice the presence of pain because of his illness, and he was placed on a pain management regime to make his life as livable as possible. He was a high risk for injuries and falls, and as such, staff needed to check on him every half hour. He was not, however, diabetic. Elizabeth confessed, though, in 2008 or 2009 to giving Michael insulin with the intention of ending his life. I don't understand how there were not red flags aplenty here. This is the second patient now who didn't even need insulin, and yet, as we talked in part one, the only reason that Elizabeth was caught was because she admitted to her crimes. There has to be better checks and balances than this when we're talking about long-term care, doesn't there? Well, now you can understand why this was a major issue in Canada before COVID, and certainly an even worse issue here since COVID. The way that we care for our elderly is incredibly problematic in so many ways. Murder victim number three was Gladys Millard. Gladys would be murdered on October 14, 2011, at the age of 88. Gladys Jean Miller, née Smith, was born on October 11, 1924, in New Glasgow, Nova Scotia, and then she and her husband, Henry H. Millard, who predeceased her, settled in Woodstock. She was the mother of two children, Stanley and Sandy, and was a grandmother to four, and a great-grandmother to five, at the time of her death. Gladys was very active within her church, Knox Presbyterian Church in Woodstock, and she was also a member of numerous charities and service clubs. Gladys would be admitted to Crescent Care on September 11th of 2006 with diagnoses of Alzheimer's disease and other conditions. She was not a diabetic and she had no medical need for insulin. So, 
she would again be a non-diabetic who was administered insulin, and that would be her eventual cause of death. Julie, I can sense your anger rising a bit beside me, so I can only assume that our listeners are feeling the same way. We will go through the reasons that this flew under the radar and go through the ways that Elizabeth eluded scrutiny. But for now, I get it. This is bloody sad. These people were all killed and assaulted by the same woman in the same way and nobody recognized a thing. I'm truly beside myself right now, but I get it. Today does need to be about these poor souls who were supposed to be in her care and instead were attacked and murdered. Murder victim number four was Helen Matheson. Helen Matheson became the victim of murder on October 27th of 2011 at the age of 95. Helen Muriel Matheson was born on June 4th, 1916, and she settled in the village of Innerkip. Her husband, Carl Leroy Matheson, predeceased her in 1998. They had two sons, John and Neil, and also had numerous grandchildren and great-grandchildren. She had also been active within her church, Innerkip United Church, for many years. Helen was admitted to Crescent Care on January 20, 2010, from the adjoining Crescent Care Retirement Home at the age of 93. Her diagnosis included dementia, but again, did not include diabetes. Helen also had no need for insulin. The fifth murder victim was Mary Zorowinski. Mary was murdered in November of 2011 when a lethal dose of insulin was injected. Mary was 96. Mary was born on April 17, 1915, and she spent most of her youth in Sudbury. She'd worked as a waitress, was married, and had four sons. Her husband and three of her sons predeceased her. Before Mary was admitted to caressant care on May 6th of 2011, she was described as being incredibly independent. Mary was diagnosed with a number of medical conditions, including dementia, but she was not diabetic. Again, Mary did not have a need for synthetic insulin. Helen Young would be the sixth murder victim. She was fatally dosed with insulin on July 14th of 2013. Helen was 90 years old. Helen Whitelaw Marshall Young was born on June 29, 1923 in Scotland. She served in World War II within the Royal Air Force in several locations including Wick, Scotland and London, England. The Air Force was also where she met her husband, Peter, better known as Sandy Young. Helen and Sandy moved to Canada in 1949, with Helen moving to Canada as a war bride. The two lived in Calgary before settling in southern Ontario in the 1960s and finally Woodstock in 1971. Helen was predeceased by her husband in 1988 and they had no children. Helen was always outspoken and she loved animals and she loved to travel. She was very involved with the Lions Club, the Humane Society, and other charities. Helen was admitted to caressant care on December 12, 2009 with a number of medical issues, including dementia. However, sorry if we're repeating ourselves a lot, Helen did not have diabetes and did not have any need for synthetic insulin. Elizabeth's seventh murder victim was Maureen Pickering. 
Maureen was killed with an injection of insulin in March of 2014. Maureen was 78 years of age when she passed away. Maureen O'Neill was born on June 9, 1935, in Tilsonburg. She would then live with her husband, Hubert Pickering, in the greater Toronto area in the 1980s before settling back in the Tilsonburg area. Hubert and Maureen did not have any children together. Before her husband passed away, Maureen especially liked to vacation in Florida. Maureen would be admitted to caressant care from Tilsonburg Hospital on September 9, 2013. Maureen had been diagnosed with dementia and Alzheimer's disease, but not diabetes. In April of 2014, Elizabeth was hired as an RN at Meadow Park Nursing Home in London, Ontario. That is where she met and killed her final murder victim. Arpad Alahos Horvath was born on November 14th of 1938. For most of his life, he lived in Stratfordville. He was married to Lana Horvath, née Jacobs, and they had two children, Susan and Arpad Jr., and three grandchildren at the time of his death. Arpad was an avid hunter, known as an international big-game hunter, and he was very proud of his Hungarian heritage, even serving as president of the Hungarian Club of London for 29 years. For 50 years, he had worked as the owner and chief engineer of Central Tool and Dye Limited in London. Arpad was admitted into Meadow Park on August 29, 2013, and he suffered from a number of medical conditions, including dementia and diabetes. On August 31, 2014, Arpad would pass away, just one year after he arrived at Meadow Park. As we said, Arpad would be the last person that we know of that Elizabeth had murdered. But there were still a couple more victims of abuse that would come after the death of Arpad. The fifth victim of assault by Elizabeth Wetlofer was Sandra Towler. On October 1st of 2014, Elizabeth resigned from her position at Meadow Park to get help with her drug and alcohol issues. She did admit to police that she was even stealing medication from Meadow Park as a part of her struggles. In January of 2015, Elizabeth started to work for Lifeguard Home Care, which was based in Brantford, Ontario. Lifeguard is an assisted living company that offers nursing assistance and services within the homes of their patients. Lifeguard also looked after sending personal support workers and registered nurses to long-term care facilities in the area. Elizabeth would work with residents in their homes as well as within those homes. One of those homes was Telfer Place Long-Term Care Facility in Paris. Telfer Place is where Elizabeth came into contact with Sandra Towler. Sandra Towler was born on April 6th of 1939, and she lived in Brant County, where she raised her daughter and her son. To date, Sandra Towler is still alive. She suffers from dementia. Sandra was admitted to Telfer Place because of dementia, Alzheimer's disease, and diabetes that was controlled by oral medication. This means that while she was diabetic, she was not using insulin. Elizabeth admitted that she had overdosed Sandra with the intention of killing her. Finally, we reach the end of the awful, tedious, and heartbreaking list of men and women. The last person that was assaulted by Elizabeth was Beverly Bertram. St. Elizabeth is the biggest health care provider in Ontario. 
They have more than 8,000 staff, and they deliver approximately 5 million healthcare visits annually. St. Elizabeth, again, helped patients at home and in nursing homes as well. Elizabeth was offered employment with St. Elizabeth Healthcare in July 2016. She aided patients in their home within Oxford County. This is where and how Beverly and Elizabeth met. Beverly is still alive today. Elizabeth admits to injecting Beverly with insulin with the intention of ending her life. Beverly resided in Ingersoll at the time. She suffers from a number of health issues and suffers also from diabetes, which she controls with injectable insulin. She does not suffer from dementia. In the summer of 2016, Beverly had surgery on her left leg, and on August 19th of 2016, Beverly returned home from the hospital, and nurses from St. Elizabeth attended her to help with an infection. One of the nurses that attended was Elizabeth, and we get more into the crazy details of what she did before she attempted to murder Beverly on the next episode. But suffice to say, Elizabeth did administer unwanted and unneeded insulin to Beverly with the intention of killing her as well. And so we get to the end of 14 people whose lives were affected and ended by Elizabeth Wetlawford. In episode one, I said that I actually feel for some of these criminals when you look into their past and see what kind of life they had. I've said that multiple times throughout the podcast even, but the reality is that many, many people have a bad life or a bad school life or a bad home life or all of the above. But very few of those people take it upon themselves to in turn fuck up other people's lives or worse. This woman clearly admits that she had the intention to kill many more people. And if she didn't, and if she had not told CAMH herself that she had done those things, who knows how many more people may have died. So many lives ended. And like you said, going through a Sugarloaf event is not a walk in the park either. So even the people that she didn't kill, she tried to kill them and certainly caused them and their bodies a great deal of stress. One thing that I wanted to mention here at the end is that one of the most heartbreaking parts of the research for this case was reading obituaries. I wanted to do justice where I could to the families and to the deceased, but what is sad is that you really have to sit back and think about dates here. These people were killed by Elizabeth long before their families even knew that they were killed by Elizabeth. A lot of these obituaries thank the staff at Crescent Care and mention that their loved ones had passed away peacefully. Years went by, and then I think Julie said it best as I was researching. Then this news breaks, and they have to grieve their families all over again. Now they find out that their loved ones were killed. They certainly did not die peacefully. Not to mention, you would really question yourself if you had a role in sending them to the home where they got killed. You would have so many questions and so, so much anger. I honestly cannot even imagine the anger that you would feel. Is there anything else here in this episode that pertains to the victims that you would like to add to, Julie? As far as the finer details, I want to save that more for the next episode. Well, really, I just want to focus on the fact of how long this list is. Like, this isn't, you know, just like a handful of people, which would also be as bad, but like 
there's 14 people here and she was going to get away with it. Like, I think that's just the scariest part of all of this, you know? And of course, you know, they always say like children and elderly are our most vulnerable. So like this episode gives me chills because a lot of those people can't voice what's going on to them. And especially these people here with dementia and, and all these other things going on, you know, it's just... It's really sad and I think the gravity of everything is really enhanced when you realize that there's 14 people on this list that we know about. Yeah. So I, it's just really sad and I can't even imagine what the family is going through or went through. And also I know what it's like when you have a sugar low as a bystander, it's really scary. So I just, as a second, third party or whatever you want to call it, <laughs> I feel extremely, extremely um, sad for everybody. Yeah, you know? it's it's certainly true. I mean, I said I kind of alluded to it in the, at the end of the first episode in this series, but like it really insulin really is like a silent killer. You know, um I mean, and you know, like you alluded to, you've seen me go through these sugar lows. Like it just it's awful to go through, let alone like I can't imagine being a non-diabetic who didn't have a sit down with a doctor and didn't have a clue what a sugar low is, let alone what it feels like. And then all of a sudden you're having this and it seems like a severe anxiety attack. And yeah. like these poor people, the ones that passed away, the ones that were assaulted, everyone that Elizabeth did this to, like they did not die or peacefully or they did not go through a peaceful experience that much is for sure well and you know a lot of people as they get older they don't want to go into nursing homes like that's already taking away their independence and their way of life and their the way of thinking that they do so you know it's almost like you have to convince them that it's a good place for them and you know that it's a loving and caring home like a home away from home kind of and then something like this happens and like you just question everything like these things like this are exactly why people don't want to go there yeah. so when you hear about this stuff like how can how can anyone send someone there it's it's so hard you know like i i don't even know what to think because yeah. i'm just like a nurse did this to yeah. someone well and that's really at the end of the day like i think that's where we'll leave it or we're gonna get too much into next elizabeth. episode <laughs> yeah and elizabeth and i don't want to no but like i will say you know just to echo your sentiment um, it's a hundred percent true. I mean, I have experiences in my family of grandparents that were inside long-term care homes and obviously they didn't go through anything to this extreme, but there are, there is mistreatment that goes on and it's really unfortunate. I mean, I alluded to it before. I mean, the two segments of society that are the most vulnerable are our children and our seniors. Mm -hmm. And the unfortunate thing is that there are just like every job, there are people that take this oath to take care of people and will take advantage of the situation. And it is it is sad because, like I said, I mean, at my work, I get to talk to a lot of seniors who have been through things that I can't fathom or would have no idea what it was like. And I love listening to them. Like They are a valuable resource and a resource that, you know, is going away on its own. We certainly don't need people like this um ending their lives even sooner absolutely and at the end of the day like there's still a human a human being and it's nobody's right to take away their life in any way you know yep. so um i just yeah i think if you if something seems off or whatever when someone away uh, passes away in your family especially a nursing home like do the research look into it get an investigation going 
Um, because you never know, right? Like if one of these people would have said like, hey, you know, um, like why was their sugar low when they died? You know, mm-hmm. maybe they could have looked into that and maybe saved the grief for future people or answered more questions for people that uh, were affected in the past. So I don't know, but I just think this one's really, really sad. Um, and I think we'll maybe get a better understanding, um, maybe not any closure, but a better understanding in the next episode. For sure. I want to touch on one more thing there just to try to um, maybe tie a little bow in something you said there that might be confusing to people. Um, So for people that have diabetes, obviously, you know, your sugar just can go low. So these people that were already on insulin, I would say a hypoglycemic event is not abnormal. For these people that weren't diabetic, what likely would have happened is they would have had that sugar low, passed away, or went through a medical event, and because they weren't diabetic, their body would eventually push out more insulin. So the problem is when you get to an autopsy or something like that, their sugar level wouldn't have been low. Oh, that's true. Yeah, I guess it would depend on when the autopsy was conducted. So you're right. You're right. So yeah, that's true. That's a good point. Yep, exactly. But I think with that, we'll wrap a bow on this episode. I want to say one more time, rest in peace to all of the victims and our thoughts and prayers go out to the victims who are still with us. This is an awful experience. Um, This is an awful thing that happened to people. And, you know, we'll get more into Elizabeth and her mindset next episode. I do want to wrap up the show by reminding you, um, if you're listening and you have a cool story that's happened in your life, reach out to us. We have this hashtag be better movement going on. Julie loves it. Julie loves hearing the stories. So reach out to us on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram, on TikTok, in email. If it's a social media, we have it. So reach out to us. Let's have a chat, share your stories, um, talk to us about whatever you want to talk about. And I think we'll leave it there. Yep. So thank you guys for listening, and we'll see you next week. On Gone But Never Forgotten.